news this evening is speculation concerning the real facts behind the Department of Health announcement about a radioactive spill supposed to have occurred yesterday at the state nuclear plant. You know what you're thinking. Mine's bigger than yours, right? It's not fair. Throw it away. All right? Tons of popcorn there. Yeah. And all you gotta do is go climb a tree to go eat it. <laughs> it was a night like any other night. Then something happened. Oh, good lord. It's. It's unbelievable. It's. It's horrible. Welcome to the Really Awful Movies Podcast, a celebration of low-budget cinema. The sleep of reason gives birth to monsters. Hi, my name's Chris, and along with Jeff, we're bringing you the very best and worst of horror, sci-fi, post-apocalyptic wasteland, kung fu, and women in prison movies from the 1960s to today. Check us out at reallyawfulmovies.com, part of the Crypt TV family. From our downtown Toronto headquarters, here's episode 158, Un Chien Andalou, 1929. Louis Bunel, Salvador Dali, silent film, 1929, 21 minutes long. We are going to attempt to do a podcast. This is, this is going to be the very first time that we're going to do a podcast, which is longer than the actual movie. You say that now, but, <laughs> but we'll see. You, you don't think we can talk for 20 minutes about Un Chien Andalou? We'll see. There's a quote by the great... British atheist Bertrand Russell who said that we live in a time when One of my the stupid by the, way, okay. Russell, yes. the stupid are cocksure and the intelligent are filled with doubt so which one are we <laughs> are we capable of mm-hmm. discussing this we'll find out which camp we fall into well it's funny because you have a lot of trepidation right now about uh, but uh, doing this but see you uh, are the one my trepidation has trepidation yeah oh my god <laughs> the impetus for this podcast was you my friend yeah. because you always not always but you often text me you text me a lot that's okay well, well it's, it is reciprocated yeah. <laughs> it's not like i'm stalking you or something yeah and fair enough we exchange uh, you know, uh, dispatches about what movies we're going to discuss. Right, and sometimes you'll say, oh, why don't we do this one? Or I'll text you and say, let's do this one. And one day, and you said, let's do Unchien and Blue. And I kind of dismissed it. I was like, eh, yeah, whatever. I don't know, were you, were you serious at that point? Or were you, had uh, you seen it before? I, no, I had not, other than the ant scene and the eye scene. Mm-hmm. I had not seen the rest. So, so why didn't you take yourself to heart and say, Andalou, forget about it. Well, why what, are I what, being cajoled, cajoled into doing it now? Because that's what I thought. That's what I thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, right away, yeah, right. Ashien Andalou, a 21-minute serial film with no discernible plot whatsoever made by two prominent Spanish serialists, Salvador Dali and Louis Bunel. <sighs> Come on, man. Come on, man. And really, we're a genre podcast. This is a genre film. I'm going to talk about that as we continue with this discussion. But... I like challenges, and we're going to do another movie. I'm not going to mention the title, because it's coming. 
But for some reason, I did not feel like watching them. I didn't feel like watching a narrative movie right now. There was something about... I didn't want to go through this, the, the standard three-act arc. I didn't want... I was just... Well, even in horror, I was going to be... It was a, we're going to do a classic horror movie that a lot of people have fond memories of. But every movie basically has these three-act arcs. I didn't want to go through it. I didn't feel like watching it. So I, it hit me. Hey, let's just do a Shannon and the Loop. That suggestion, that sequence planted all those years ago, and it's now well starting to germinate. So yeah, the gauntlet is thrown down. We are are, are we in over our heads? No. Uh, I think we can do it. How many surrealists does it take to change a light bulb? That's a good. <laughs> good. Oh, see, when in doubt, always start the joke. I don't know. A chair. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, there you go. So yeah. here we are, floundering, scrambling you to, that, but I, hey, to to try and make something of this, yeah. to try and make something well, new, as it were, okay. which is the famous line that you know underpinned all of modernism by Ezra Pound: "Make it new." Mm. We were tired of the three-act structure. We were tired of. The characters you're introduced to, the love interest, the antagonist, the backstory. Okay, so now we're we've got none of that, and really we have none of that. We have a language we don't speak, except for what we would call cereal box French. Canada is bilingual. We have just enough to flounder our way through the credits of this mm -hmm. in our basic well, basic French. It's a silent movie, and the interspersed uh, dialogue was in French. No subtitles on the version we just watched. So, but again, I mean, that was inconsequential. No, it's just one of the many yeah, barriers we have to this. Mm -hmm. But so how did this come about? And I, you were telling me that you've, you went to an exhibit of Dali. Where was this? Well, I no, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of both these, these uh, artists, mm -hmm. Dali and Puniel. Uh, I've gone to Dali exhibits one, I believe, was in somewhere in Europe. I don't recall. But in actual one March of France, I went to the official Dali Museum. And for those who don't know who Salvador Dali is, and that's sort of impossible not to know. I mean, if you don't know his artwork, you know his image. It's iconic with the, the, the mustache. The twisty mustache, twisty yeah. mustache. I mean, this is a man. Not only was he uh, a painter. I mean, this he was a multimedia artist. I mean, he did sculpture... He did installations. He did performance art. He did video. Yeah, and he as I mentioned all. earlier, and I read this somewhere that he did. And he was a provocate, provocateur. Pro provocateur. Yeah, provocateur. he did a uh, model display window for a major department store in New York City, mm -hmm. which I, I just found amazing because it conjures up so many images, like this guy with this twisty. I think it was Diego Vasquez. It was some painter that he modeled his look after. And I can't imagine this freaky figure at like Bloomingdale's or, I don't know, Sears or something, like fixing mannequin. Well, maybe I can, actually, now that you think of it. Well, in the, in the <laughs> 1980s, Dolly could not paint anymore. Hmm. And that was due to the ravages of his, a disease on his body. He couldn't physically paint. So he was probably doing this. And that's when he, he started becoming a regular. I mean, I believe he was, uh, he would see him at Studio 54. He was living in New York City. He would hang out with Alice Cooper. But most people, when they... <laughs> Who didn't, uh, I guess. Vincent <laughs> <laughs> Price also hung out with Alice Cooper. Yeah. Uh, most people, when they think of Dali, besides, the second thing that comes to mind after the mustache is the persistence of time. The, the, yeah. Know, which is his most famous painting with the melting clocks. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I mean, there's, you know, he's, the face of war is another one that's uh, incredible. The Great Masturbator. 
Uh, yes. A painting. That's <laughs> <laughs> a painting that came out. I was going to say, you at age 12. Okay, never mind. No. <laughs> um, lobster telephone. That was interesting. I saw that one at the dolly. It was a telephone yeah, with, with a, a lobster, lobster uh, fixed to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was not a painting, it was an mm-hmm. actual installation, I guess. It's a dolly. I mean, yeah, he, this is a man uh, who is was larger than life. The, the surrealistic clocks, the melting clocks, I mean, everybody, whether you're into art, the, the art is in the, it's in the ether, you know what I mean? Like, there's certain paintings that if you're not even, if you're not a connoisseur of art, even if you're a Philistine, you know, mm-hmm. and you don't have any interest in art whatsoever, there's a certain, there's a number of paintings, such as, I would say, the Mona Lisa, uh, Starry Nights, perhaps, American Gothic, uh... Um, the Watchmen, maybe, uh... The still life, uh, uh, the flowers, the Van Gogh, the Vermeer, uh, woman pouring the uh, the uh, whatever it is the 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 oh yeah, the what, the the growth of pearling that, well, that another yeah. one yeah um and yeah the Pacific Five everybody mm. has seen the kiss another one plimped right yeah yeah it's in the ether it's in the air you know what I mean people who have no they don't care about visual art whatsoever. They have encountered these because they've just become, I hate to say it, but... Oh, new Descending a Staircase, Duchamp. Uh, yeah, and many, yeah, it becomes part of everything, it, part it of life. It almost wallpaper, you yeah. know, because it's been used and reused. Oh, I was going to say Scream, too. My, my, how many coffee well, mugs said, that is. Scream. Oh, okay, yeah, a coffee mug and shirts, mm-hmm. and it has diminished its impact. Exactly, it, it does diminish the impact. However, and that this is the, the, the power of art, because I personally, I love going to museums. I love, you know, whether it's... Whatever era, I don't care what, you know, modern art, uh, renaissance art, you name it, whatever, oh, whatever yeah. genre, cubism, dataism, impressionism, all the isms, I love it all. And when I go to museums, especially with, you know, the few times I've been fortunate enough to go to Europe where they have some of the greatest museums, I literally develop, there's one of our connections to horror, Stendhal Syndrome. The title yeah. of, an, of, a, of a movie <laughs> by made by Dario his daughter. Stendhal Syndrome is an actual affliction where people, when, when they're in front of beautiful art, they get almost physically overwhelmed because the, the beauty and or the sublime, because it's, you know, I did take a course in philosophy about this, about philosophy of aesthetics and art can be beautiful or sublime. Sublime is not, the true definition of sublime is not what we Oh, it's sublime. This dessert is sublime. Well, sublime is something so powerfully overwhelming when it comes to emotions that it's almost unbearable. That's what sublime really means. Hmm. Um, yeah, that you get this sense of just feeling overwhelmed by it. It's a, it's a physical reaction. I get that in museums. So when I see something like the Mona Lisa, okay, like I, when I saw it in the Louvre, even though the Mona Lisa is about as generic an image as i don't know mickey mouse you know mm-hmm. well as underscored by people from this time mm-hmm. with the mustache that was added to it to make a mockery to oh. upturn the aesthetic pop art uh, yeah yeah and, and, and that's the thing and provocators and whatever mm-hmm. yeah um you know andy warhol would do a lot of that what was some sorry who did the mustache? Oh, i would say uh, duchamp and the found our mm-hmm. uh, found object yeah. uh, object are oh object dar Oh crap! Our French is failing us. Objet d'art, uh, objet d'art, and yeah. and where you find 
let's say a toilet bowl, I use it in a different context, yeah. and this this kind of thing was uh, how art was fomenting at the time. And you mm-hmm. mentioned Andy Warhol, well, second only to Andy Warhol in terms of crass, well, not really crass commercialism, but commercialization and unabashed self-promotion is, is Dali, right? Mm-hmm. And I was also going to mention even street artists like Banksy. I mean, to me, that's it's just it's it's art. It's wonderful. I love. I don't. I can't say I love it all. You know, I I, I look at the critical jaundice eye. But what speaks to me speaks to me. So I get the Stendhal syndrome, and I'm not okay. No, when I saw the Mona Lisa at the Louvre, it was fucking ridiculous. It was. You, you might as well have been a fucking Justin Bieber concert, you know? Yeah, I can imagine with Japanese tourists snapping oh, and, and trying to surreptitiously just take whatever selfies and, and like, we talk about diminishing impact. I couldn't Reproduced it. in digital yeah. form and then uploaded to another digital space. It's just yeah. how many far, how much more far removed from paint on brush can you possibly the way get? I thought I never understood that like take a picture in a museum the way I thought well no but see that's the thing I mean some museums don't let you take pictures and it pisses me off because I like to take pictures in museums uh, I've, I uh, the, I went to an H.R. Giger uh, museum in Austria and I wanted to take pictures tremendously and there was this guy he was like teleporting wherever it was I was trying to take these surreptitious ninja like pictures and oh, there he was don't take a picture um, I like taking pictures but the reality of the matter is that I thought, I don't know why, but I thought it would be a very gentle, uh, very elevated experience to see the Mona Lisa in the sense that you would wait in line and it would be behind a locked door and there would be a guard there. And one at a time, you would be let in to, to see the to, Mona Lisa. To have Lisa. your own yep. personal Stendhal syndrome. Yeah, exactly. And then you leave next. No, it was a fucking madhouse. There were so many tourists pushing, shoving, jostling for space and to take... Not pictures of the picture, but pictures of themselves with the picture, and it was it was almost offensive. However, when I continued roaming the quarters of the Louvre, and I'm coming across other, and I came across the actual, you know, because I studied in law school, the Code of Hammurabi, and I actually saw the Code of Hammurabi, you know, the actual Code yeah, of Hammurabi, yeah. sculpture, uh, whatever stone sculpture. I, I mean, I, I was, I got the Stendhal syndrome, you mm-hmm. know. So, yeah, I mean, the Kiss by Clint might be almost uh, the equivalent of clip art, but when I actually <laughs> saw it in uh, the museum... in L'art de clip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's no, my, but my the, fake French. And I'm like, okay, this, this is the actual painting that was done. Well, okay, maybe it's been restored. doesn't matter. This is the canvas that Clint worked on. Or if I see an actual Da Vinci, other than you know uh, the Mona Lisa, yeah, I felt the same with Bosch in Belgium, seeing the triptych, and uh, actually as as the experience of otherworldly, uh, is it ecumenical? Or, okay, re- real religious evil and yeah figures of demonology and the underworld is something that's lost because we don't think in terms of good and evil like our predecessors did, but you can't help but think that when you encounter a Bosch because you're oh my God, it, it's, uh, it turns over everything you think you know because it actually does ask the, pose the question to you whether there is an afterlife and whether you've lived up or down as the case may be to uh, expectations like it's terrifying mm-hmm. people who don't and who have committed transgressions and grievous sins that is so brazenly and and vividly depicted in it was meant to invoke terror in the, in and the populace, the and that see, it, did, it does. We even through modern eyes, although before, every art, every era thinks they're modern, right? Before the moving image, paintings was cinema. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. that has that was how the artists communicated to the masses their message. I'm not a religious person. When I see these Renaissance paintings, these all the, the pictures of Christ and whatnot, and it was the Renaissance, wasn't it? Uh, when that with with all the religion was a pre-Renaissance. I don't know. Anyway. Jeez, well, it runs the gamut. Well, yeah, you exactly. want to say when religious painting really came to, started to fall out of yeah. favor when, okay. Yeah. Well, but, for well, periods of hundreds of years yeah. until finally, but mostly, you know, yeah, it was, it's it amazing to think of, it was commissioned for, and for hundreds of years, yeah. uh, you know, with the exception of portrait art, that would re- re- really be the only subject you could possibly paint until 18th century when people would paint a landscape. And, and they allude to that here mm-hmm. in Anshia yeah. and allude. Any depiction of, of, you know, Christ, the Stations of the Cross, or you know, uh, John the Baptist or whatever. You know, St. Michael and the yeah. angel and the dragon and the... You know, and I, I can look at the same image interpreted in different ways for different artists and it, it just fills me with... And I'm one of these guys, like I remember on my honeymoon, I, I was yelling at my wife because I'm one of, cause we're going to these wonderful museums, right? Like the Louvre. And, uh, and my absolute favorite museum, which is in Austria, and it's the uh, natural... Um, not the natural museum. The... Uh, Kunsthalle? No, well, well, Kunst is art in German, but I, yeah, I don't know if it, that it, was it. I've been to Vienna as well, but I can't remember. But yeah, it's the uh, well, it's it's a historical art museum, and it was my second time there. And I remember being going there ten years prior on my own and just having my own private Stendhal syndrome, and then being there my and my wife, someone she just goes and looks at the painting and moves on. I'm like, what are you doing? Mm. Stop. Read. I like to read. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. Absorb. Absorb. Yeah. Yes. Why? You, no. She's like, well, I, I saw the painting. Okay, now I want to see that. I'm like, you don't just look at the painting. <laughs> you you savor the painting. You 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 let it enter every pore of yeah, your body, yeah. and you you know. So that's the thing with art. It, it speaks to me in so many ways. Well, and there's art that I love, and there's art that I hate. Like I hate the group of seven, the the Canadian. Oh uh, yeah, although yeah, the, I, I've changed my tune on that as well. Like we don't want to get into too much into the intricacies uh, intricacies of it. Uh, recently. Uh, I guess Steve Martin, the comedian, curated a an exhibit of, of uh, a group of seven paintings in Toronto, and he's a huge fan. And it's some of them, yes, again, reproduce this luscious, beautiful Ontario landscape, but other they get really quite. They have a real modernist take on it, and I, I've changed my tune on that. So, but it's interesting you mention Austria, of course, because what would modernism be without one of the great thinkers of the last century, which would be Freud. And so what we have here is the unconscious and surrealist trying to paint and abstract expressionist trying to paint not what they see and reproduce just a landscape and, mm-hmm. and, a, and a still life of flowers, but to try and get inside people's heads. Mm-hmm. So what we have in Ancien Andalou is... Well, before we even get so I want to now talk about Buñuel because... Mm. I adore Buñuel. A lot of them are his latter-day movies, but like, such as Belle de Jour, The Obstruction of Desire, Discreet Charm, Charm of the Bourgeoisie, The Exterminating Angel, Phantom of Liberty, etc. But he is the father of cinematic surrealism. So when you have, you know, Shannon uh, Andalou was his first movie. It was him collaborating with Dolly, and you have these two fathers of surrealism in their respective mediums, and they're coming together, and what you're going to get is something indelibly important and many people it's kind of funny because you know i'm gonna i'm gonna read your quote right now so it's actually not a quote it's song lyrics which i think most people some people are listening right now know what i'm gonna be saying and here's the lyrics got me a movie i want you to know 
slicing up eyeballs i want you to know girly so groovy i want you to know don't know about you but i am un chien andalusia want to grow up to be a debaser this is the song debaser by the pixies and for many people that's the first time they heard of un chien andalou was I, what un chien andalusia what what is this you know slicing up eyeballs and that's what this movie is known for the iconic scene of the eyeball being sliced that occurs within the first minute, I would say. Surrealism is horror. Horror is surrealism in many ways because it's horrific. It's 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 image. Like well, what did, when I say the word surreal, what does surreal mean to you? Oh well, it's uh, in popular parlance, it's completely lost its meaning as as you said. How art has when it's been reproduced ad nauseum in different forms across different media. Right now, it just means something weird because some idiot celebrity like Ariana Grande will say, "Oh, it was so surreal working with you know Jennifer Hudson on the Hairspray or, or, musical." Or like it's not yeah. that's not surreal. Yeah. What would be surreal is if Jennifer Hudson uh, was twirling a baton. And then unfurled an umbrella and, and stuck it in your belly button. That would be surreal. The fact that you met someone famous is not surreal. So yeah. surreal has just become, uh, it just morphed into a term that just means disbelief. Or, but, I mean, yeah, and when you're, using, you're talking about pop stars now. Yeah, I mean, like someone, if I started doing the chicken dance right now while blowing bubblegum, mm -hmm. that is surreal. And I'm mm -hmm. not going to do that. Yeah, yeah, only because this or, is a podcast. Or somebody might you know, <laughs> win an award, an Academy Award or a Grammy. Oh my God, this is so surreal. That was not surreal at all. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I'm not a fan of hers because you mentioned pop stars, right? But Lady Gaga, when she wore that meat dress, that was rather surreal. That was surreal because that was something... To a certain extent, although Lady Gaga... Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, she's yeah, she, she is, is, is someone who's working within the, <laughs> the strictures of what can, is can, to be considered weird. Taunt, if you ask me. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. Exactly. Like, there's, yeah. there's certain, uh, um, I guess, uh, boundaries, uh, mm -hmm. transgressive boundaries she does not cross. So, big deal. A meat dress. Like, I, I'm... I'm an eccentric guy. You are as well. Like, I don't think... I don't think she's particularly weird. I collected stamps and played the oboe as a kid. Like, that's weird. She's put on weird. You don't just... It's, it's artifice. It's artificial. Because she's weird in the confines of pop music, but not weird by the standards of... Jeez. Uh, pop artists of the past, even. Uh, who? So, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, well, who you're referring to right now, like... Uh... Oh, you know, metal machine music or something. Mm -hmm. With, like, Lou Reed. You put mm -hmm. something out that's, like potentially career suicide or something which like is Olivia Lunch or something or, <laughs> or oh geez now our memories are failing us here mm -hmm. uh, we can't dig back into the chronology of our minds to figure something out but yeah those are great great examples mm -hmm. of the, there's Screaming to Hawkins that's exactly yeah that's right but you you immediately box yourself in by being weird and and I guess this is what Dali was tapping into as well at the time, right? But what I find amazing about Bunel and Dali is that it's not... And that's where Gaga fails, because she's being weird for the sake of being weird. For them, weirdness was not for the sake of just being weird. This was like... For them, weird was normal, and normal was weird. Yeah, and they paid... Unlike now, you pay a severe consequence mm -hmm. for being weird. Well, yeah, if you, if you want to go back into let's say, the history of Nazi, Nazism and, uh, I forget the German term, but degenerate art. I, this stuff was, even though they had these salons uh, for the, all these modernists to showcase their stuff, for the most part, I mean, and this even carries on to the present day, people like my dad 
would be like, this stuff is shit. Like Piet Mondrian mm -hmm. painting two lines and a square. Like he would say, any idiot could do that. Any moron could do that. Uh, why aren't you reproducing what is out there in life like the like the Dutch masters did? You yeah. reproduce what you see. It's like, oh, that's, you know, what is this? This is disturbed. This is degenerate. This is creepy. This is awful. Mm -hmm. So you paid a severe price by being one of these people. Well, anyway, I asked you earlier what surreal means. Mm. And you said that the... And I was incredibly evasive. No, but, no, but you were, <laughs> no, no, it's you true. Were, but when you look at the etymology of the word, I mean, the prefix sir means over and above. I, yeah, let's get back to French class. Yeah. Like, sur, dans, sous. Mm -hmm. Sur, above, dans, in, sous, under. And I remember that from French class. Yeah. From my desk, I would put my hands above. So above the real, right? Yeah. Well, exactly. Like, oh, okay, I paid a surcharge, over and above. So, yeah. so surreal. It's over and above the real reality, you know? In other words, it's above terra firma. It's above the earth. It's above what we expect things to be. And so, ergo... Surreal is above the real, and it's something that takes the real and elevates it to a different level entirely. That's what is surreal. Unchien Andalou is a surreal movie. It is, I would say, I mean, 17 minutes with the, you know, the interspersed credits. It's really 21 minutes, what have you, of interconnected yet disconnected imagery not much in the way of narrative nor plot. Nothing, yeah. Things that, you know, a lot of wonder, uh, wonderfully interesting juxtaposition, things that shock you, things that terrify you and horrify you. And that's why to this day it kind of re retains its power. You know, when you see that eyeball being sliced, and what's wonderful is that that's the genesis of Shannon and Delu, is that Bunel told his friend Dali that he had a dream where he saw the moon being bisected by clouds, and from there... They got the ball rolling. Well, that's exactly it. It all comes back to Austria. It's all your subconscious. It's all your dreams. Mm -hmm. It's your dreams that uh, affect how you live. And yeah, it's, it's amazing how like even 90 years hence, uh, that scene still, it's, it, there are certain touchstones in horror that still horrify. This film, all its lean 21 minutes, like I, I flinched yeah. when, when the straight razor was brought toward the woman's eye and and uh i remember seeing this when i was like 11 walking around downtown toronto because there's this local crank who shows movies in his, in his yeah in his in his living room and he posterizes the city with black and white posters but all you see is a razor coming towards the eye you don't actually see the actual the, the yeah. yes and then i guess they used a calf to mm -hmm. replicate this but i, I was a calf's eye, yeah, a calf's and, eye. and i was mm -hmm. i was squirming yeah, but it, yeah, sorry, to you, but like it's juxtaposed with that exact image that came from the subconscious of, of yeah. Brunel. It was you saw a moon, a bright orbital moon, with a cloud bisecting, bisecting it, it, yeah, and then the straight razor violated the orbital. I was going to say the orbital socket, but yeah, I mean, it violated the pupil, and then you know the pus comes out. Imagine even today, you're like, like you just flinch. Imagine 1929 with audiences completely unprepared thought and then as this film goes on you know there's images again i mean talk about juxtaposition there's uh, a woman's armpit and there's hair in the armpit and then that is juxtaposed in a sort of shot where the morphs into a sea urchin we also see things like a woman in the street poking and prodding a severed hand 
Yeah, well, hands play a prominent role in Dali's art and, mm -hmm. and severed limbs as well. But it's interesting how transgressive that remains in addition to the eye. I mean, uh, if you are on network television and you're on a morning show, like there's no way you would be able to show uh, underarm hair. Even that at the time was probably transgressive too because since Roman times, well, this people good. have been, still, but people have been removing body hair for thousands of years in women, let's say, predominantly to, you know, plucking and doing whatever it is that they do, uh, you know, the equivalent of the Brazilian in the medieval times and that, but you can't get away with that. Just think of the scandal with Julia Roberts at some awards show where she lifted her arm mm. and that, and I thought that is in here as well, juxtaposed with, a, it might have been a sea anemone or an yeah, urchin, I don't even know, I, we were, the symbolism might be lost on us there or just that it's, what could that have possibly meant? Who knows? But it speaks to what really is at the heart of this was just um, not really random, but differently juxtaposed images working against chronology and subverting expectations mm -hmm. by throwing things in that you don't expect. And this is, I guess, uh, it casts a long shadow when you see a terrible art film let's say, in university where they would have these short films that people in the film studies department would showcase. And God love them, they would always be into uh, the Bergman style, like pretense, and they would never cut that stuff away and you'd have someone staring solemnly into a mirror and then people would just titter because the audience is like, this is ridiculous. This is over-the-top artifice, yeah. pretense, nonsense. But uh, in a way, this is the birth of that mm -hmm. and you could see it still uh, emerge and that but, but again that's just one of many arresting images yeah. in this we there's have, we have the, the hand with the hole in it of the ants coming the ants out. yeah and you know we can we can talk about symbolism and what this may mean and uh, of ants ants coming out of a hand a hole in the hand ants Oh geez, I, don't know. I, I see. I'm not, I don't want to analyze it right now. I don't want to analyze the symbolism. I just want to talk about the images. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about you know the the moth of the death's head. I want to talk about the the pianos being being dragged or drugged, whatever. Yeah. yeah well, uh, with, with donkeys, dead donkey carcasses, rotting carcasses inside. I want to talk about the um, well, um, a moth. I mean, what death and rebirth myths that mm -hmm. persisted throughout religious thinking for eons. Uh, even if you want to talk about on a very basic level, it has nothing to do with transcendence. Uh, rebirth is maybe learning something new. Is even a type, uh, a small form of rebirth, mm -hmm. if you want to think about it. Or maybe overturning something that you used to believe, and now you think differently. That's a form of rebirth. Sure. They, they, uh, exactly. That, went, wow, that's, that kind of just blew my mind, because that's exactly what this yeah. film did to audiences in 1929. They made I can imagine. Differently, and, and yes. And, wow. and then it, that's... It, and it, even failing that, we're going to investigate more about what this death moth even represents uh, from people far smarter than ourselves, <laughs> because that's one of the hallmarks of being smart is knowing your limitations. <laughs> I, I didn't even know what a death moth was. So I was like, okay, now I know because of our conversation, we're learning something. And it was repeated as a motif in this movie a couple times. So it must mean something, uh, as was... Again, uh, there's a man who's dragging both a couple of deceased donkeys at, atop pianos yeah. uh, attached by rope yeah. to some minister, some priest. One of whom was actually 
played by Dolly himself, unrecognizable without the mustache. Yeah, and who knows what we're going to make of that, but, uh, I mean, horses have obvious Freudian connotations, but I don't know what donkeys mean. Is, uh, is this a burrow is a beast of burden? Maybe it's the burden of being French and being well, under the hey, thumb of the Catholic hey, hey, Church? Hey. I don't One know. One thing about Bunel, okay, was that he was raised in a, a, a very, very stri- with a very strict religious upbringing, which was foisted upon him. And As he rebelled. Is. <laughs> huge, okay? He rebelled by fleeing first to Madrid, then to Paris, and so on. So by him, what was the point you made earlier? I'm, I'm oh no, but just being un, un, like just being burdened by exactly uh, the beast of burden. Yeah, yeah. Dragging the priest. It's like he, it's almost like maybe, maybe he's commenting on being burdened by religion and you know Catholic guilt or whatever was put upon him, and that was a burden. These were shackles he had to free himself of, just like. These uh, donkeys were shackled within the confines of these pianos. <laughs> yeah, who knows what the pianos? I meant. mean, it just goes on and yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. started thinking more and more and more. I don't know what the what the the ants coming out of the hole in the hand mean, but I mean, obviously stigmata. Mm-hmm. The hole in the hand is going to represent. So a lot of this has, to, I think, comes down to religious um, iconography and so on. And you know, this movie you can watch. Uh, I, of course, seventeen minutes long. You could literally watch it. A dozen times in a day. Yeah. It doesn't. But you can just, you could try, there's two things you could do. You can try and interpret it, come up with your own interpretation, try and maybe one up somebody. Like, no, well, I think this means this, but no, actually it means this. Oh, you're right. You're, you're, <laughs> yeah, who knows? And, and multiple also uh, speaking to how it can't be, this actually can't be shown on television. Mm-hmm. Uh, and multiple uh, scenes of nudity. Yeah, and. Uh, I guess the recurring motif of the the woman's bare back turned to the... I don't don't even know if you want to call him a protagonist because we don't know really who he is. He's one of these two gentlemen who's walking through a forest uh, whom we're not introduced to, or to whom we're not introduced, more properly. Uh, We don't know who he is. Is this a some kind of commentary on the inscrutability of women uh, the fact that her back is to him he doesn't and you see this twice she's nude from the waist up you don't see her face and he keeps putting his hand on her back i don't know what this means again it's just one of many sort of disconnected disjointed bizarre images that are thrust together to make you ask questions such as we're vainly scrambling to do <laughs> but that's just the thing as i said before you can in, you can interpret it and you can try and interpret it and you can come up with your theories and your thoughts or you could just let the images wash over you and take it almost as a uh a, a poetry almost you know like a visual piece of poetry and just look at these disconnected images and things that are above the real and absorb it and then maybe in your subconscious it will come to you the answer will come to you. <laughs> Who knows? But this is something, this is something that has had long-lasting influence. I mean, with the, you know, I talked about the, the Pixie song. Uh, David Bowie on his uh, station, station to station. station yeah. yeah, he would always play this before the he came out on stage. And, uh, I mean, I, I imagine, I mean, you just seen the eyeball slicing scene for the first time, really? Like the actual uh, No, no, but, uh, okay. yeah, it doesn't matter, though. You flip your magic doesn't being in a, an diminish. arena full of, let's say, 20,000 people, and you're all watching it en masse and how you would feel, you know? It still has the power to shock, to titillate, to confuse, which is good, mm-hmm. to compel, to inspire. It's it's, it's something incredible. It's, it's art in its purest form. That's what Uchiha Andalou is. Now, again, 
Why are we talking about Felix Shannon and the Lou? Well, you threw down the gauntlet. Oh, geez, I don't know. And I'm still trying to figure out the, the symbolism of uh, one of the characters standing against, well, by a doorway, you know, in front of a wall on which hangs a tennis racket. And he's just standing there staring against the wall. And I asked you, does this tennis racket have any symbolism? What is life if not a never-ending <laughs> futile game of tennis? Bouncing back and forth. Oh God. Volleying over the net, back one way, then coming back. Ro Robert Frost said free verse mm -hmm. is playing tennis without a net. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. Well, this is definitely predated Robert Frost. This but, is uh, <laughs> but just uh, do you need structure? Like uh, that's that's what he questioned the uh, the viability of free verse as art because mm -hmm. uh, a, a net in tennis imposes structure. Well, uh, structure is imposed in all sports. I mean, you want to talk about David Foster Wallace? He has these terrific essays about how boundaries uh, under underpin all sports because if you can go anywhere you want, uh, then you don't have a sport. Imagine if you had the yeah, a soccer game where you, there was no lines. You could just go anywhere and then, hey, I'm over here and you pass it. Like, it has boundaries just like religion has boundaries. That's why many that, many sports are treated like it, a religion. Yeah, it, well, you have to cross boundaries, yeah, right? In essence, all sports are ridiculous because uh, ridiculous all sports can be boiled down to rules. And that's all it is. You're just following rules. Yeah. <laughs> it's a competition of rules. Yeah. But, I, yeah, and about the high priests of, of, of sports, uh, John Madden, are these commentators mm -hmm. who are these analysts who wax poetic about different aspects of yards and touchdowns and all this stuff. You have it interpreted for you yeah. by analysts and all over the place. The is, high... In many ways is also... Hey, are we that? <laughs> I hate to think. Are, are we the high... No. Yeah, but that kind of like cinema is rules as well. I mean, um, there, there's conventions and cliches. And yeah. So and, and You can't go beyond these either. You know, we talk about certain things. Like, I remember we, we joked at the very beginning we started our podcast that we would never mention Eisenstein. But, I mean, <laughs> he sort of, you know, he broke the rule. Yeah, I mean, yeah. He, he broke the mold with his use of montage. And that's what cinema can do. I mean, it's purest essence. Cinema took the, the, the still image and turned it into something fantastic. Something you could not do in a painting or in a sculpture you could do with cinema because of the 24 frames per second motion picture. And, unfortunately... Your your um, Eisenstein's, your Bunels, your uh, George Males, etc. You know these these people these these visionaries. Now it, it gave way from showing us something new, elevating our minds to crass commercialism and just making money and cinema. This in many ways transmogrified into art from from art to commodity, but we still have art and that's. You know, there's still those art houses. Some of them are a little too protected for their own good. You know, some of them, like, the, you know, they, they want to be weird for the sake of being weird. Other ones, really, and I'm, th I'm not even thinking of, like, a modern-day filmmaker like Ben Wheatley. I, I've mentioned him before. Uh, Nicholas Winding Refn. I haven't seen The Neon Demon yet, but I'm going to be watching it tonight because I actually got myself a copy of it. Uh, these are filmmakers that are actually still pushing the boundaries, and in many ways, they're the children of Lucien Andalou and uh, Salvador Dali and Louis Bunel. So, even if it matters at this point, because it's not the the uh, as broad a lexicon to speak to us all as it once was, because now that has become well, video games now. So we're always seeing different medium media eating away at our favorite medium, which is film, but it doesn't hold the uh, transgressive power it once did. And it'll be interesting to see how, because there's like a weird, 
I guess, uh, I don't know, uh, bounce back quid pro quo happening between video games and films. And there's going to be a time when they get so advanced that we're going to be just creating our own worlds inside a video game and creating our own denouements and endings in film. Mm -hmm. And film as we know it will cease to exist. Well, I hope not. But, um... <laughs> or, or we'll, yeah, or we'll just become gamers. And this will be the really awful gaming podcast. I think we would get a lot more <laughs> downloads if we were... It, it certainly would. Yeah, huge... we're not in this for the money. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we're, we're, we're happy with our downloads. Don't this is wrong. very true. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm amazed at how many downloads we get for our podcast. I'm just saying gaming is massive. Yeah. If we, if we talked about gaming, we would probably... It, it's eclipsed films in terms of worldwide revenue. Yeah, this is yeah, unmistakable. We, we would not double our downloads. We would not treble it. We would yeah. quadruple it, you know? Because gaming is... But yeah, if I don't want to talk about gaming. No, no, true. I want to talk about you know transgressiveness transgressing the boundaries and then that's what this film did and it's and it still has a power retains a power shop all these years are um hence which which is amazing it still has a power to shock and you know so i'm going to go back and say well this podcast why we talk about this movie you know is it's, it's not a genre film but it's, i could say it's horrific it's a horror movie yeah yeah, yeah for sure these, there's images of, i mean you got a connective thread from this film all the way to Fulci Zombie with the eyeball. Oh, yeah, Lightning, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, so there, I mean, surrealism. Hey, uh, yeah, The Godfather, even, with the demise of the Jewish gangster, uh, that still gets to me. Yeah, it, or, it, it, or it, the horse head of the donkey, you know? Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, and then you also have, um, like, Alejandro uh, Jodorowsky, another amazing filmmaker who's uh, who was a Spanish. What is it with, with the Spaniards and the surrealism? Jeez, I don't know. Is it because of the uh, um, the dictator Franco? I mean, yeah. uh, I'm not sure. I have no idea. Like, it would just be pure speculation on our part, about yeah. which I'm more comfortable to do with at least Italians, because that's my background. Right. But I have no idea. And when, what's what, uh, Seinfeldian? What's the deal with Paris? Midnight in Paris uh, demonstrated it well, but holy crap. Uh, just what a wellspring of writing, talent, art, poetry came from that period in that time where everyone who was anybody lived, whether it was, uh, I guess, their pal Miro and, you know, and Hemingway and all these people living at this time in one place. Well, it's one pretty my, remarkable. One of my favorite artists is, uh, is uh, Toulouse Lautrec and, uh, you know, a very uh, famous Parisian artist who documented life in the Moulin Rouge and the sleazy underbelly and yeah. on the syphilitic hookers. <laughs> yeah. It's just wonderful stuff. Wonderful stuff. Uh, so films like this one, films like Cabin of Dr. Caligari, etc. You know, modern day horror fans. I mean, they say, "Well, wait, if you need a horror education, rent Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Watch that. Watch uh, Night of the Living Dead. Watch um, yeah, Psycho, Psycho, what have you? No, go further back. Watch these surreal movies. Watch Shannon and the Lou. Watch Cabin of Dr. Caligari. Of course, Metropolis. Um, of course, Nosferatu, Murnau's Nosferatu. Watch uh, Edison's Frankenstein. It's Ooh. all there. It's amazing. It's it's it goes further and further and further. Even the Lumiere brothers, I believe, made some horror movies. And well, horror, light know. bulbs going off in my head right now to yeah, do just so. that. That was my triple entendre there. Yeah. But yeah, you owe it to yourself to check these things out and mm. see where how far we've come and how it still resonates with us today. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I'm going to apologize if we if we made any factual errors in this discussion because we sort of. Yeah, this, this is, is very free for all. Very yeah. free for all. It's like um, a free jazz talk about modern art form, uh, mm -hmm. jazz. Yeah, this is. We didn't really have the luxury of 
And I think that would have probably undermined the discussion too, because we wanted because to just take it, think, to, yeah. yeah, take it to places where we never knew things yeah. would go. So, so I was going to say, and the, the, it's a very apt analogy of the jazz. Because I, mean, yeah. I, I apologize if this is not a linear discussion, but you know what? I think that in a way, like you said, well. I said, this is going to be the first time where our podcast is going to be longer than the actual movie. Yeah. I'm looking at the, what we have right now. We're at the 45-minute mark. So well, we, fantastic. Well, we, jazz is a great analogy, if I do say so myself. Because even is, with... This is like a summer track right oh, now. My God. <laughs> well, even with... Uh, you, you can't... Well, at least... Okay, you can. I always find that free jazz is, very, is a little bit irritating. Like, you have to work within the structure of something. Like, even... Uh, Oh geez, I want to who played piano on it. But even let's say something as archetypal and timeless as like kind of blue, uh, Miles Davis even like made sketches. Oh, hey, it's all coming back to Spain. He did sketches, sketches of Spain, Spain. Yeah. but he he did sketches <laughs> of the types of of uh, like where he wanted to go with these. Uh, you know, indelible tracks on that album. So it's not like they were just going in in the studio, just going, oh, let's create something in the key of G. Like, they they had little elements of where, like signposts of where they should go. So you always have to have some kind of structure. And maybe our listeners would say, arguably, this podcast should as well. And But we impose structure on our podcast too, which we're probably not going to use here, which is maybe what we learned because we learned so much. Mm-hmm. And also, star, star rating. rating. I mean, uh, it's, this it's, it goes without saying what it's going to be here, right? So, but again, you have to have some some box to put something in, mm. even when you're talking about people who tried to blow up the box. Right. So, uh, as this discussion winds to a close, any for any final thoughts on Ken and Lou? No, but I just I think it's hilarious that yeah we're just very reluctant to divulge the you know the pedestrian '80s horror that we were going to talk about. It's just so hilarious that we were, I was just strong-armed if i want to call it that okay that's a little unkind into talking about this because it's like oh my god yeah, I, I'm, I kind of so my, t- my will upon you on this yeah one. you really did yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, someone who didn't have the best the triumph sleep. of the will yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah and i'm just uh, i'd like to think we did this justice but again even if we didn't it's not our business uh, as long as we can uh, get people to watch these films with us and mm-hmm. get some feedback and doesn't, doesn't even matter if there's no feedback just Go watch it. Right, and I was gonna say, I mean, for those that are, why the fuck are the the really why the fuck is the really often we talk about Shannon and the Lou and free jazz and uh, Monet Manet Tippy Tippy Day Day and all that. <laughs> another cycle reference. We'll, we'll we'll be back to regularly scheduled programming next week, and we'll talk about some sort of eighty slasher. I am yeah, sure, I'm sure of it. So yeah, for sure. You know, thank you for uh, allowing us to indulge in uh, this discussion. Thank you for listening, mm-hmm. and um, we'll talk to you soon. We'll talk to you soon. Take care.